guys, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Amy Hollenkamp. Hey, guys. And we are going to talk about dysbiosis, one of my absolute favorite topics, and we're coming hot off the heels off of our SIBO episode. So, Amy, let's talk dysbiosis. Where would you like to begin, my friend? We yeah. have a lot to cover in this episode. For sure. I mean, I think with dysbiosis... A lot of times people don't necessarily grasp what that means. I think it's such a, it's a pretty broad term as well. Um, So maybe to start, we can talk a little bit about the difference between like kind of pathogenic dysbiosis versus Mm -hmm. like um, imbalance. Cause I think, or again, like there's, it can be potentially pathogenic, but do you, do you get yeah. what I'm saying? Like almost like opportunistic yeah, pathogens. Flavors. Yeah, the different yep. flavors of, of what dysbiosis means because it is it tends to be a little bit broad. And I think there's definitely like it's important to make the distinction between pathogens that are really outright causing dysbiosis and opportunistic pathogens where, you know, they're overgrowing in some capacity in the ecosystem and causing problems, but they're not necessarily a bad microbe if they're kept in check. Yeah, and that makes sense. And actually, I've got to pull up a file on my computer because I think I had written down a really nice um, definition of it from a class that I had taken a while back. But I would say, to kind of start us off, the way that I generally explain dysbiosis to people as a primer is that it's basically an imbalance between the good and the bad stuff in an ecosystem. So for the purposes of our conversation, we're going to be talking about the gut, but just know that you can have dysbiosis in the vaginal tract, in your sinuses, in your lungs, in the small intestine, wherever. On your skin. So you can have an imbalance. That's another one too. Skin is huge. Um, But basically... You know, there are infections, and that would be like if you have Giardia, or one of the bad E. coli's, or Campylobacter, or, you know, something that is always pathogenic. If you run any, like, GI map stool testing, it's all the stuff on the first page of the GI map is always bad in any capacity, point blank. You don't want to have any of those laying around. And I would argue that the stool testing that I see coming from the conventional medical space when it's done at all, it's they're always just screening for pathogens. They'll screen you for Giardia, they'll screen you for E. coli or Campylobacter, but that's it. End of story. And that's important to know when you have an over-infection, but there's also these opportunists or these pathobionts like Klebsiella or Pseudomonas or Staph or Strep or H. pylori where, yes, they're bad if you have too many of them, but in some very low capacity, it could be normal to cart those guys around on any given day. It's the overgrowth of them or the overabundance of them, or if they become more virulent, that that then tips that balance and that scale into a more dysbiotic state. But the definition that I, I looked up real quick that I thought was really well done is a uh, dysbiosis is a relationship of non-acute, non-infectious, host microorganism interaction that adversely affects the human host. And I thought that was really well put. So it's not an infection. It's not like if you have Lyme disease or an overt staph infection necessarily, but dysbiosis is this chronic 
bubbling, brewing imbalance in the ecosystem that could still cause you a great deal of inflammation, it's just probably not going to kill you right now in this moment. And you could have this overgrowth of the bad guys, like the pathobionts that are normal in some low capacity, but if they become overgrown or particularly virulent or nasty, they become problematic. Or you could have an insufficiency in the good guys. So that's usually called insufficiency dysbiosis, where maybe you have a normal amount of the bad guys, a normal amount of candida or whatever, and you have no bifidobacteria or no lactobacilli mm -hmm. or no acromancia. And that's a different flavor of dysbiosis. You wouldn't treat those two things the same way. Um, and certainly you could have both situations where you have too many bad and not enough good. So there's the combo, uh, you know, the combo take on it too. But that's usually how I explain it is it's an imbalance between the good and the bad without it being an over acute infection. Yeah, it's not like an outright pathogen where in any capacity in a small amount it's going to create a lot of problems and you don't necessarily want it there in any in any capacity you don't want salmonella to yeah. show up on your stool test At in all. any capacity um yeah. but i think that i really like how you're how you're explaining it it is an imbalance of some sort uh and it's interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking like through different stu different stool tests are like running through my head, you know, ca categorically of of people that I've worked with, and I definitely see, I definitely see a lot of the combo, which I think's mm -hmm. a little bit trickier. Um, yeah. But again, not impossible. Just like I think it's a a little bit more challenging if you have lower amounts of good guys, and you kind of have this overgrowth of bad guys. Uh, and it might take like a delicate approach there of figuring out what's going to work in those scenarios. Um, but I think it's really important to like emphasize that low bifido is something to be worried about too. I think we're always flagging the bad, the bad actors, the bad, the bad apples, yeah. uh, in this scenario, but we're not really looking as much about the good guys. I mean, it's, it's often that I'm looking at a stool test. Maybe it's a past stool test um, from from a different practitioner, and I'm going through yeah. it. And um, yes, there's some like overgrowth, and it looks like there's imbalances going on. But then I'm looking at the bifido, and I'm like, hey, like, have you ever worked on building up your bifido markers in the past? And it's like, no, I didn't know my bifido was low. Like, there's not much attention on reestablishing the good guys. So I'm really glad that you started yeah. us out with understanding that it's not just all about the bad apples. You Hardly. really want to make sure you're you're fostering uh, a robust, uh, healthy population of good gut bugs. Yeah, and you could kind of think of them twofold. The ways that I typically explain it is, A, you could think of like those good bacteria and even the neutral bacteria, the ones that aren't yeah. particularly good, but they're not particularly bad either. Like you could think of those as like your army. They're your yeah. troops and they're going to help you crowd out or compete with the bad guys and make it much harder for them to shack up in your gut. But also like I, I'll frequently talk to people about um, how do I word this? Um, we can try to kill the bad stuff from now until doomsday. So yeah. I could I could be the person who gives you oregano 
or Berberine or Neem or Allison or a combo product or whatever. But you don't want to do that all day for the rest of your life, right? Like we need to have those checks and balances in place. Like in the SIBO conversation, you want to have checks and balances in place to make sure that the bad guys never get out of control or make sure that your motility never goes out of control. And for the dysbiosis piece of the puzzle, you need to have the good guys around so that they can do the heavy lifting for you. So it's almost like this lazy man's approach to dysbiosis, honestly, because it's like, I can make my job easier and I can speed it up and I can speed up the recovery if I get the good guys on board. And that way we don't have to consciously think about killing shit all the time. We can just get your good guys on board and then they're going to take care of your bad guys for you. And we don't have to be as conscious about that eradication phase because they're going to be doing the heavy lifting for you. And I would argue the same is true of your immune system. If we can work on your immune capacity to clear or manage microbes, that will do a lot of the heavy lifting for us. And then we can just come in with a little bit of cleanup and do some berberine or whatever. Um, And it makes our job a lot easier on the killing phase of things. Yeah. And I do think like uh, it's interesting just the discussion around like, okay, if the good gut bugs are low, would bringing them up and doing strategies to bring them up take care of the dysbiosis somewhat in some capacity, kind of clean up the dysbiosis in general? And I think like from my standpoint, I usually go from like the conservative but also still powerful approaches first. So... Mm -hmm. You know, trying to manipulate the environment so that good gut bugs are growing and really trying to foster the good gut bugs and foster immune function like you're, you're, you're pointing to and see yeah. how you're feeling. Because um, I do think sometimes the conservative approaches work on their own and you don't necessarily yeah. need to do a strong cleanup, just depending on the case. It's not every single case can... Oh, yeah can avoid doing any like pruning with oregano oil or certain herbs but i do think there's cases where like even just focusing on growing the the good gut bugs and balancing balancing out the gut by increasing good gut bugs that part of the equation i think can take care of a a huge portion of of the cleanup on its own again certain cases are gonna need extra support but I do think that you definitely want to make sure you're 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 working on that part of the equation and not just the killing oh, part yeah. of the equation. And I think, you know, I was going to say this, but I'm going to start by putting a little asterisk up front. So so keep that yeah. in mind. But I was going to say that the more pathogenic or the more nasty or virulent the bug is, the less likely that only working on the good guys is going to be the answer or the only answer. So if you have Giardia, just boosting your Bifido is probably not going to be the entire picture for you. It could be a piece of it for sure, but it's not going to be the whole enchilada. But then I paused and here's the asterisk is you think about something like C. diff. That's a hell of an infection. And really the best way that we could treat C. diff is by bolstering the good guys through FMT, fecal microbiota transplant. So it does make you kind of take pause and go, but wait, there is this one very clear example of something that is particularly nasty and virulent and we could treat it 
really effectively by just introducing new good guys to crowd out that bad guy. Um, so I think it depends on the case, but certainly I've seen cases where, and you know, because of the internet and all the summits and all the SIBO kind of stuff that's out in the world right now, people will frequently come to me with this belief that they need to do a lot of killing and they have yeah. like a really stubborn case of SIBO and they really need to nuke it. And then we do follow-up testing where we, we work on the good guys and it turns out maybe they don't need to do any killing at all or maybe very yeah. little one round. And it was really more about bolstering those good guys and getting them boosted up instead of just obliterating everything and knocking the snot out of the bad guys. Yeah. So I and have I, seen that before. And I do think like I'm probably like sensitive to that area just because it was so true in my particular case where I think mm-hmm. like a large part of my issues revolved around a really kind of chaotic and imbalanced large intestines. I didn't have intestines. I didn't have anything like really pathogenic in there it just was sort of like a mess um, of imbalance so I think for me I definitely saw positive improvement by doing kind of more rebuilding approach and Mm -hmm. I think that like it's just important to note and I think you were you were making you're making this statement by what you just said like there are people too that just like aren't necessarily responsive to herbals at all um and they need to do more of the rebuilding and repair um i think everyone even if you're doing clearing and it is working needs to do some level of rebuilding and repair yeah but i do think that there is people that aren't even responsive to the hyper-aggressive approaches for dysbiosis and imbalance in the large intestines. It really is a case-by-case thing yeah. from my from my standpoint. Yeah, it, it depends. And, you know, this is where stool testing is totally imperfect for numerous yeah. reasons. Like, stool testing does not accurately reflect the ecosystem in the rectum, the colon, the small intestine, the stomach. So that's important to know. When they've compared like aspirate studies, stool testing is not super reflective of what's going on inside. Um, And also there's the issue of like the different types of technology. I've seen very vast differences between culture stool tests versus PCR versus 16S versus whole, whole genome sequencing. So the stool testing is really tricky to do and it's imperfect. And I think that's why the GI world is extremely hesitant slash skeptical to do stool testing is that they just see it as this imperfect tool and they're like, well, we're not gonna use it. And I think it's important to know that it's imperfect and it's not going to give you all of the answers. Yeah. And as a side note, you know, in this day and age, 2020, we have only been able to name about 50% of the microbes in the human microbiota. Yeah. And a lot of the ones that we have a name for, we have jack shit research on. Yeah. So like the ones that are well-researched are very few. And then there's a handful that we have a name for. We know they're there. We kind of know what class they belong to or what phylum, but we don't know a lot about them. And then there's a whole 50% that we have not even named yet. So that's another reason why stool testing is a limited tool. But that being said, it can give you some really valuable insights and it's a great tool to use. And I order stool testing on practically every patient, but it's like you take the good and you acknowledge the limitations and you just try to use the tool for what it is. But I have found it to be really beneficial because like I said, I mean, 
different bacteria respond to different things. And if we need to nurture the good guys, we can get a rough understanding of that on stool testing. And we can try to gain some understanding through this tool. Um, but I want to segue off of this and mention, you know where this comes into play absolutely the most that I've seen, and you may or may not agree with this, freaking yeast overgrowth slash candida. <laughs> O-M-F-G. Like, I, people, when they come to see me and they, they already are aware that they have a yeast issue or they think they do, um, almost always they are in this kill, kill, kill mode. And they're looking yeah. for the magic antimicrobial, the magic herb, the magic whatever. And I'm always telling people the number one thing you can do is get your microbiome on board so that they can do the heavy lifting for you because they're going to inhibit the bad yeast and they're going to favorably manipulate that yeast environment so that you can't get candida overgrowth. And then your number two backup is your immune system. You want them to be on board so your immune system manages your damn yeast for you. But yeast overgrowth and candida is a huge world and that's a whole nother podcast in of itself, but that's a huge space where I see the need for for balancing the microbiome and getting the good guys logged online and logged online hard because point blank, you will not beat candida if you don't have bifido. You will not beat candida if you don't have acromantia and lactobacillus and fecalobacterium. Like it's so important. I cannot overstate this enough, but it's not just about taking, you know, pow to arco and like you're good or yeah. never eating a morsel of sugar again in your life. And then like, cool, I'm good. The, the candida game is much more complex than that. And it really hinges on your microbiome doing the heavy lifting for you. Yeah. I mean, the candida issue, I think would definitely be, we'd be primed to do another whole bit on the candida world. I know when I first uh, thought I had SIBO or first had SIBO, sorry. When I first got diagnosed with SIBO, I thought I had candida um so like again i did the whole like no sugar um kind of crazy sort of candida diet which was awful don't feed it because you'll be doomed but i think what what sucks with that is that like these no sugar no carb diets are starving your microbiome even more so it's not only just about that the candida space is just obliterating your microbiome with herbs and the various protocols but the diets that i see are just i think way off the mark in a lot of ways um because they're just they tend to be pretty low carb you're not able to really feed your whole microbiome because the diet's so limiting um and i just don't know how you get over candida without broadening your diet to include like more soluble fiber foods and not just, you know, asparagus or which asparagus does have um, things that feed the microbiome. Yeah. So that's not a great example. But like you get what I you get what I'm saying. There's a limited yeah. array of foods that you can use to feed your microbiome. And it it really I mean, I would say um, it's really just going to be impossible to get over candida if you're freaked out of foods just from a mental standpoint, but also just with limited fiber in the diet, it's going to be practically impossible to maintain your your good gut bugs, like your bifido levels, to keep yeah. the candida and fungal issues in check. Yeah, 
I, I would agree. And I think um, that's another point to be made, too, is that dysbiosis is a very broad term. So like we were saying, it can encompass an overgrowth or overabundance of pathobionts, things that are okay yeah. in moderation to sound cliche, but if they're excessive, they could be problematic. Um, it could be insufficiency dysbiosis, so you don't have enough of the good guys like bifido. And it can also encompass different kingdoms. So this can be the good and the bad bacteria, the good and the bad yeast. Yes, there are good yeasts and bad yeasts, and that is a thing. Is Fungal dysbiosis or mycobiome dysbiosis is a thing, and it's very fascinating to read on. Um, and even good and bad parasites, maybe. Like some of that hygiene hypothesis coming to play is that some amount of some parasites might be okay, but if you have like Giardia or a big honking worm, then maybe that's not so good. <laughs> um, but this can encompass, and even Archaea, you have all these different kingdoms in your GI tract, even viruses like bacteriophages, we know they're there and we know absolutely nothing about them comparatively. Um, but we're going to see in the next, you know, tw 10, 20, 50 years, an explosion of research where we start to really get a hand on what dysbiosis looks like, the different flavors, the different varieties of it, and what you can do to treat each one. But I think that the building up of the good guys and not being overly aggressive on the bad guys cannot be overstated. Yeah, 100%. I, I think I said this in the SIBO uh, discussion we had is that I always view it as like this narrow window of like, you don't want to, you want to kill enough of the bad guys so that it's helpful and you have symptom relief and you're kind of pruning out what shouldn't be there. Yeah. But you don't want to overshoot it to where you're really hindering your microbiome from recovering. And yeah, like I was saying earlier, I don't think it's necessarily just um, uh, an herbal approach that's faulty in this process. It's the diet approaches too that that we don't really switch to help to foster a healthy ecosystem mm -hmm. in the gut. We're definitely programmed to be very restrictive and it's hard to make that swap and i think that adds extra anxiety and stress which also adds to like probably negative things happening to the microbiome as well so i just think again this whole kill or starve is is the word i like to use for it like starving yeah. the gut out that mentality just as you're saying is is you have to be very careful with um killing slope. and starving and both of those strategies have their place. So I don't necessarily think you should never try to starve your microbiome if you want to kind of get some symptom relief for a period of time if your symptoms well, are out of... Go ahead. Or, you know, like Candida is a good example. Like it's going to hurt precisely zero people if you cut out soda and yeah. Pop-Tarts <laughs> and fruit roll-ups. Like if you're eating actual shit and you're eating sugar, sugar you probably are legitimately feeding the candida and you need to cut that out if you want to get rid of the candida. But, you know, when I see people who come in with candida and they refuse to eat strawberries or yeah. apples or like any fruit or any root vegetable because of the sugar, I'm like, ah, that's the point where you need to talk because now I guarantee the diversity of your diet is not good. And therefore, the diversity of your good microbes is 
not good. And now you're never going to beat the candida if you're in that position where you're starving your bacteria because you think you're starving the candida. And now you're in this crappy place and you're in a rut and you have no bifido, no lacto, whatever it might be. And I see people who get stuck in that rut where they just, they starve, starve, starve. Again, if you're eating like fruit roll-ups and snickerdoodles on a daily basis, and by all means, starve the candida a bit. But where you start restricting fruits and vegetables, that's oftentimes where I'm drawing the line and I'm going, ah, but maybe we could do this a different way and still get the same benefit without all of the baggage and the the awfulness that goes along with the really strict candida diets. For sure. I would say this too with SIBO is that, you know, we've picked on the SIBO diets quite a lot with, you know, low FODMAP and SCD and all of these SIBO diets and IBS diets. And one thing that's very consistent with the research now with low FODMAP diet, as an example, is it tanks two of your good bacteria consistently. Mm -hmm. Every human study I've seen that tried to look at this shows low FODMAP when you're trying to starve the SIBO you're also starving bifidobacteria and fecalibacterium, which are two really important groups of bacteria if you want to keep your microbiome in check and you like don't want inflammation. So oftentimes people with SIBO will try to starve the SIBO and then not intentionally, they will start legitimately starving. Bare minimum, they're starving those two good groups of bacteria probably others we just haven't had a ton of good quality like stool testing and and like studies that have tried to assess for this and they're probably killing their microbial diversity although to date i don't think that's been documented yet but you start to compromise either the colon microbiome or the small intestinal microbiome or both with these starving efforts and now if you didn't have insufficiency dysbiosis to begin with you sure as heck have it now whether you gotten rid of the SIBO or not. Now you have a whole nother bear to deal with. Yeah. And a couple of points just on that. I mean, that's such an important point that I don't think anyone's really thinking about. Um, When they go on a low FODMAP diet, they're not really, they're thinking about killing things or starving things, not, you know, fostering the microbiome. But people that have IBS have also been shown to have already low bifido so you're yeah. you could be making the problem way worse and i also wanted to just talk briefly about you we were kind of talking about starving the candida or starving the SIBO isn't great and especially with candida with carbs you also need certain people need a certain level of carbs to maintain hormones to feed yeah. their brain like so what happens too is you're you're starving out these candida and you're also starving yourself and that's going to create these hormonal issues that will then lead to more candida so if your hormones aren't online candida can definitely take off as well so you might be solving maybe one problem or so to speak one issue by doing that but creating you know five more uh, yeah, it becomes start- this game of whack-a-mole. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get to that point where they feel that way, where they're just like, I've taken eight gazillion supplements, <laughs> I've restricted my diet so much, like, what do I do now? And it's, it's again, it's because, like, and it's, you know, again, it's going back to we in the hippy-dippy health space criticize conventional medicine for the same kind of stuff. 
We yeah. criticize that because it's like, take this drug and the side effects, you know, you, you take and and I'm going to make up stuff because I'm pulling this out of nowhere. Take this antidepressant and the side effects are diarrhea and bloating. All right. Then you take Imodium for the diarrhea and it causes B12 deficiency. And then you take what I, and it's like this domino effect of, you know, I take XYZ drug to cover up the symptoms of XYZ drug. And then you take another one to cover up that. And it's this domino but the same thing could happen in the hippy dippy health space. Oh, you yeah. start starving the kid, you starve the SIBO or starve the candida, and then you create dysbiosis. Well, then you have to take a bifidobacterium probiotic or take, you know, something else. And now you have insufficiency dysbiosis. Well, now you have inflammation and you need to take turmeric for the inflammation. And now you have low secretory IgA and you need to take something for secretory IgA. And this is where people come in and they're on like 8,000 supplements and herbs. And they're like, what do I take? Like, what can I add? What magic bullet? It's like, I mean, maybe there's a magic bullet or maybe this is inefficient. And we yeah. need to trace it back about 20 steps and cut it off at the top of the pyramid before it gets a chance to trickle down and cause you all this grief. Like maybe you could get off of 10 or more of your supplements if we just help you broaden your diet and treat the SIBO from a more holistic standpoint or treat the candida from a more holistic standpoint. And I think that that is the art of doing this kind of clinical practice and clinical work. It's easy for me to see, and I've seen this from other clinicians and I, I was guilty of this to some degree years ago, you know, you do a stool testing, you see low bifido, and then the knee-jerk reflex is, oh, just take a bifidobacterium probiotic. You're good, cured. It's like, oh, or no. <laughs> or we try to do, like, food and fiber and stuff to feed your resident microbes, and then if you take a probiotic on top of that, that's gravy. Just rad concept, I know. Yeah, well, and I, it's just... So it's it's not necessarily a fine-tuned science either like everyone is very different and how they're reacting to things is very different um but i still think you need to nourish your body and nourish your microbiome in some capacity or else you're not going to get better and i think that sounds very like simple but i think a lot of times when you're down a rabbit hole some of the simpler common sense type uh, concepts don't necessarily, aren't the first things that are popping into your head. I know it wasn't for me. I wasn't thinking like when I was having all my issues, uh, what I what am I going to do to, go ahead. No, well, sorry. I, I think that the further along you get, the <laughs> harder it is to see those simple things and zoom yeah, out. It's, because it's like it starts... It starts to make you believe that you have a really stubborn case or a bad case or a severe case. And therefore, you need the new proprietary blend of whatever. Or you need something really extreme. And that may not be true. It might be that there's some foundational stuff that is cheap or free or easy to incorporate. But it was just overlooked for whatever reason. I mean, you're only human. Yeah, for sure. And I do think that... This is kind of a whole nother rabbit hole. But I think sometimes practitioners instill like, oh, you're a tough case on people. I mean, I've heard that from just thinking that from so many people where they're just like, oh, yeah, my doctor told me I'm like the toughest case he has. And I'm like, well, that's like recipe to set up someone to fail <laughs> if if you tell them that, which, again, um, yep. is a whole nother bag of worms. But it is. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're sort of in the realm of seeing the tougher cases uh, because by the time they find us and are listening to, to ideas that are a little bit more outside of the typical SIBO space, they're looking for new ideas and new ways of thinking yeah. around SIBO and imbalances and IBS uh, and not just the standard protocols, either conventional or integrative. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's always like heartbreaking for me to hear like, oh, you're just a tough case uh, from a practitioner to yeah. a, to a patient. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it, it is, it's just a recipe for disaster and it just sets people up to fail. And I think that some of that comes from a place of ego um, where human beings don't like to fail. And no. we don't like to be wrong. And I'm not immune to that. I like to be right. I like to be the hero. I like I like when my patients, you know, try something I told them to do and they report back and they're like, you're a miracle worker. Oh, my God. That's natural for human beings. And the converse is true. We don't like to be wrong and we don't like to feel like we're not getting the case. So I think... The temptation, whether it's conscious or unconscious, is for practitioners to do protocol X or treatment plan 1.0. The patient comes back and they're like, I wasn't responding, doc. What happens? And the natural human tendency, unfortunately, is for that practitioner to be like, well, like, it's not me and my framework that's wrong. Like, I'm clearly good. Yeah. But we just need to, like, tweak some stuff. And then they come back and they're like, doc, it's still not working. And after a couple of times, you know, it's like almost a self-protective shitty mechanism where the doctors then, or, you know, or nutritionist or whoever is like, ah, you're just a tough case. It's not yeah. me. This is on you, man. It's like, maybe sometimes that is a real genuine thing. But I think, honestly, a lot of the times it's a cop-out. Yeah, and I agree. That person doesn't want to acknowledge that for whatever reason, they something didn't click they didn't have enough information like there wasn't enough testing or appropriate testing or they haven't taken the right courses or they don't know enough about this topic whatever it might be that person clearly had a blind spot and the treatment was ineffective it's not that you're like some lost cause case 99% of the time it's that for whatever reason you hit a blind spot for that practitioner and it doesn't make them intrinsically bad it doesn't make you intrinsically bad or like a lost cause. It just means that that was a blind spot for them. And I think it it would be nice if more people were humble enough to say, hey, look, like I'm out of ideas. We've reached my my level of expertise or my level of knowledge. Let's refer you to somebody else who I think gets it or knows some other stuff that I don't know. But that degree of humility is kind of hard to find, even in the integrative space, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. I 100% agree. And I think like, even from a patient perspective, you don't want to be wrong about your restrictive diet that you went on either. I know like from my mindset, I think it was hard for me to derail to a different mindset because I'm like, I put in all this effort yeah, and I doubled down on this strategy of killing and starving and it better work and it's very hard to make that shift because you invested so much into it and you probably yeah. had to convince people around you like 
I have to starve this and they think that it's crazy because you're only eating a like you have yeah. so much invested into it that it's really hard to change gears even from the patient client side of things when it comes to moving through dysbiosis or IBS or SIBO yeah. strategies. And you're right. I didn't even think about that too. Like how much, you know, mentally and emotionally and time and money, like how much you would have invested in this if you, you know, and, and I think this is where also social media is dangerous because mm -hmm. there are influencers and social media people who make their living sometimes millions of dollars selling you on keto or paleo or FODMAP or maybe, you know, maybe their Instagram handle has the word paleo or FODMAP in it. And those are frequently the people who are very difficult to uh, change their mind because yeah. then it's like, okay, well, if you call yourself the vegan nutritionist and you make money being an influencer, whatever on Instagram, uh, it's going to be really tough to get you to pull away from that if that's your livelihood on the line now too. So it's like you see these, you know, these pages and these influencers and you see these posts that tell you without a shadow of a doubt, this one particular diet is the diet to end all diets. And you see this on your newsfeed and you forget that these are people who have their own issues and they have like their own biases and it's, it's tricky when you get that ingrained in it. But I didn't even think about it from the patient's perspective of like, you dedicated how much of your life to this concept of starving the bacteria and to acknowledge that you or your practitioner were incorrect about that or that you wasted time or effort or energy on that endeavor, or maybe that it actually harmed you is really, really a tough place to be in. And it's scary, but for a different, different kind of reason, because you have to acknowledge that you or your practitioner or both were wrong in some way, shape, or form. And it's yeah. really tough. And there's like not really, I mean, we're in the minority. There's not many people preaching other alternatives. So then it's like, yeah. okay, that didn't work. Now what? There's not really any options that are screaming out uh, from, from my end of things. I don't really know where to go from here. And that's, again, yeah. like what you're saying, a very scary place to be in. Yeah. And I, I want to make sure I, I, I'm going to change gears on us a little bit while I'm thinking yeah, of it. It popped in my sure. head. Back on the dysbiosis train, um, I just, I had this case pop in my head and I wanted to talk about this. If you get diagnosed with dysbiosis, not an overt infection necessarily, like if you have Giardia or Campylobacter or something like that, that might be a different story. But if you get diagnosed with dysbiosis from something like a stool test like Genova or doctor's data or a GI map or something like that, and a practitioner looks you square in the face and says you need to do a prescription antibiotic, I want all of you to run away. Run away quick, leave them a one-star review on Google and never turn back. I kid you not, this is not super common, thank God. Usually, if anything, we're gonna do hippy-dippy stuff like oregano. But I thought of this case. A woman started working with me. This was a, like two years ago now. And she had Hashimoto's. She felt pretty good overall, like not tremendously impacting her health yet. But the antibodies freaked her out. She's a nurse. She understands like antibodies against self-tissue are, that's not a good thing. And so she went to see a functional MD in her home state of Virginia. 
Well, the MD, I don't know, was like fresh out of the IFM training or whatever basic crap training that's overpriced anyway. And this functional MD or this integrative MD did a stool test from Genova, saw an overgrowth of a bacteria, and I'm using quotes for a reason, I'll get back to that in a minute, saw an overgrowth of a bacteria and prescribed her prescription antibiotics. I don't remember the type off the top of my head, but prescribed her prescription antibiotics and they did some, you know, a little bit of leaky gut healing, maybe like a probiotic. I don't know what else, but there was some other like very basic functional medicine kind of 5R protocol and they remeasured her antibodies and they redid the stool test. That bacteria was still there and her Hashimoto's antibodies got worse. Well, now she's, she already had a touch of anxiety to begin with. Well, now she's getting kind of freaked out. The doctor's like, oh man, this is a stubborn case. Yeah. Let's do it again. And I oh, kid you no. not, she took two or three rounds of prescription antibiotics. I don't remember the type offhand. And at that point, the bacteria was still there. And her Hashimoto's antibodies had continued to climb. Every time they tested it, they were going oh, my higher gosh. and higher and higher. Now she's totally freaked. And she reaches out to me. She drives all the way down from Virginia. We do our first appointment in person. And the stool test, I'll never forget it to this day. And this is one of the reasons why I don't recommend Genova for stool testing. As a side note, the bacteria that they labeled as high was pseudoflavidifractor. And I looked at that and I thought, all right, I know things about the microbiome. I'm kind of a nerd. I read research. I don't know anything about that bacteria. I'm curious. So I went to PubMed. I kid you not. There is one human study that I saw that mentioned pseudoflavonifractor, but it wasn't the highlight of the article. It was just mentioned as something that they observed. The majority of the like eight articles on PubMed are in broiler chickens. <laughs> and so then this prompted a whole wave. I was like, now I'm just getting annoyed and flabbergasted yeah. that an, an MD with a medical degree and a license, somebody looked at this, didn't do a quick Google search to see what the bacteria was, and just knee-jerk reflex prescribed antibiotics for this, this person, who, side note, already had questionable diversity, and then that continued to go down with subsequent testing as well. Shocker. So I called Genova, and I was like, hey, guys, what's up with this? I went on PubMed. There is a totality of eight articles mentioning pseudoflavidifractor, seven of which are in broiler chickens. One of them is in humans, and the, that bacteria is not even the topic of the research article. It's just mentioned. Why is this on your test? And they basically gave me this line of, well, we, we think it's important, and we have done some testing from a cohort of healthy normals that we selected and from that cohort of 100 or so healthy, normal people, uh, we established our reference ranges for all of these bacteria. And um, yeah, so it, it made it on the test. And I'm thinking, meanwhile, <laughs> there are bacteria that the stool test does not assess. Like they don't test Bilophila wadsworthia. They don't test, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of others. Like there's a few bacteria that I wish that they would assess on this particular stool test. And they, like somebody consciously chose, well, we're going to include pseudoflavidifractor for God only knows what reason. But anyway, this, this medical professional wrote three prescriptions of antibiotics. Oh my gosh. For a bacteria that is of questionable significance. And this patient continued to get worse. 
and she was totally freaked out. And she came to me, and I basically uh, did that research and told her, I hate to tell you this, but I think that this chucklehead didn't know what he was doing. I think he had the best of intentions, but um, I, don't, I don't think we need to worry about pseudoflaphidifractor. Let's focus on some of the other stuff. And we did some different stool testing, because again, I'm not a big fan of Genova stool testing for various reasons. And her diversity sucked. And she had low levels of, I think, pretty much everything. I think bifido, lacto, and acromancia. Oh and I think the calibacterium. Like, everything was low. <laughs> and she had way too many proteobacteria. Like, I think her proteobacteria was like 10% of her microbiome, which is absurd. Oh gosh. And high. And I was like, well, let's work on that. And now we've tracked her progress with this similar type of stool testing that is a 16S type stool test that we're just using as a proxy and we're remeasuring antibodies. And I kid you not, her antibodies have been going down every time we've tracked and her levels of good guys are going up and her proteobacteria are now normal. And it's like, <laughs> and it's all food. Practically. Yeah. I mean, I had her on like one or two or three supplements here or there, but the vast majority of the work is having her diversify her diet. And she was a person who went, you know, she went gluten-free and then she went paleo, then she went AIP, then she went like AIP low FODMAP and, that, yeah. and she had kept restricting and the changes for her have been so profound and it's tracked with the data that we have. But I, I tell you with a straight face, if somebody honest to God looks you in the eye and says, you need to do prescription antibiotics for dysbiosis, you run away and you never, ever go back to that person because they don't know what they're doing. You are going to kill your good guys. You're maybe not even going to kill the damn pseudoflavidifractor or whatever they're going after. Now, again, if you have campylobacter or something like that, maybe that's a different conversation. But um, for these dysbiotic situations, antibiotics are not the answer. And they're usually the cause of a lot of the grief. <laughs> that's yeah. why we all have dysbiosis to some degree or another is because doctors have been popping out pills of antibiotics like candy for generations. And it's finally starting to catch up with us. So... Rant no. over. Yeah. Moment well, over. And I know, like, for me, that's a sensitive topic because I was prescribed Cepro uh, for SIBO, which, again, was horrendous um, from my standpoint. I did not do well on Cepro. I think it honestly set me back about a year. Um, but one thing that I've heard a lot from microbiologists who aren't thrilled with some of the stool testing is... <laughs> that like there's certain back certain microbes that they label as like being out of range and then that gets hyper focused in on like oh this is a problem yeah when and they're not looking at the the full ecosystem and yeah and they're just trying trying to narrow in on certain uh markers and the microbiologist argument is that might maybe these markers might not work for some per some people but would be totally fine for other people to have a little bit higher levels of this particular microbe mm. depending on what it is um but like there's definitely microbes that are flagged by a lot of the stool tests that might be totally normal to be a little bit higher in some individual compared to another individual uh, and yeah. it's more about how the ecosystem's working together as a whole and there's definitely there's definitely stool tests that do a better job of looking at that than others. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that's going to be kind of 
the future of stool testing hopefully is trying to get an understanding about how the ecosystem is working together versus like trying to to isolate one particular microbe and there's certainly Mm. microbes that you want to be in kept in check but there's also some on these tests that like what you're mentioning is it really a problem make it to the list (laughs) yeah exactly and i know when i've heard um some microbiologists talk they kind of do not like some of the the reference ranges that are used in the stool testing and what kind of makes the cut and what doesn't yeah so it's a really good piece of information to acknowledge and to make sure you are or working with someone that can help you figure out if this is something that is important or is it something Mm -hmm. That's okay, and that takes some level of interpretation. Like any test, like we've talked about, even with the SIBO test, so you can't always yeah, there's just. There's an art to it. Yeah, there's a there's an art to it, and sometimes like it takes making a judgment call and seeing if it works and adjusting later. If it works, that's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, it's not necessarily an exact science quite yet. And that's just really important to acknowledge so that you don't get into the space of feeling like you have to jump on this antibiotic because you have a higher level of a certain microbe that's on your stool test. It's It, it should be interpreted in such a yeah. way where it makes sense. Yeah, there's some context to it. Like, yeah. And I think, and this isn't a topic I talk about with everybody um, I always start the conversation when we're going over any testing that we get through like LabCorp request, that those labs have a reference interval. They don't say it's a normal range. They don't make yeah. that claim, but literally everybody, layperson and doctor or medical professional included, everybody assumes that that's where you want to be. But in actuality, labs like LabCorp and Quest are plotting everybody on a bell curve. And as long as you're plotting well with the bell curve, which is in line with the general population, which they're all sick. Yeah. Like, you don't want to be, you don't want to have a similar insulin level to like your uncle Chuck. You want to have an ideal human physiological insulin level or whatever it might be. So I, whenever I go over blood work with new patients, I'm always telling them about, hey, this is how LabCorp and Quest make their ranges. It's all a big bell curve analysis. With a couple exceptions here, they're like cholesterol, but this is how they're basing this. And I'm going to tighten up some of the ranges and explain why I believe that they're off. So like TSH being one. Mm -hmm. TSH, they say you could go up to 4.5. That's absurd. You want to be below 2.5. But there's that that knowledge of like seeing things before they get so overt that LabCorp flags it. But then similarly, even with the functional medicine labs... This is an issue, like I said, I have this issue with Genova because, like I said, they had a cohort of, like, 100 people, and they determined their reference. I think they said 100 or maybe 150 when I was on the phone with them. And this is for their GIFX. They use those healthy normals to determine their reference ranges, and then they picked some bacteria, including pseudoflavonifractor, and they went with that, and they give you, like, those quintiles or quartiles, and... Have you met like anybody? I've never met a healthy normal in my life. Because even people who think that they're healthy normals have been through some weird medical shit in their life. You never meet anybody in this day and age who's never had an antibiotic. 
Yeah. I mean, I've met like three of those people in my life and all of them I met in chiropractic school. And it's only because they were raised by chiropractors who knew better than to give their kids a lot of antibiotics. But, you know, this idea that the labs are determining the reference ranges from their healthy normals that they're seeking out. And we don't know if those people were paid to be a participant in that, like, or if they were like staff members who work at Genova Diagnostics. Like, we don't know. So... Yeah. This idea that like Genova made their own reference ranges. The GI map does the same thing. And they go as far as to call their ranges normal. Like they write the word normal yeah. near their ranges. But I'm calling bullshit on that too because the GI map, similarly, I have a lot of issues with it and I'm moving away from using that test more recently. Yeah. They will let your acromancia go down to zero and they don't flag it as low. What kind of bullshit is that? Like, you need some acromancia. Yeah, for Why sure. Why don't you flag it as low? <laughs> so yeah. there's stuff like that. Or like, I I don't think I've gotten more than two GI maps back in the entirety of my career and running this damn test for so many years. I think I've seen two tests where bacillus was not elevated. Yeah, for Everybody sure. Everybody has elevated bacillus on a GI map. If you see it, don't bother. <laughs> it's yeah. probably a nothing burger. Um. So there's definitely issues with the functional labs, and I won't even get started on the culture-based technologies like doctor's data, but um, the stool testing world is very complicated, but you can at least get a loose idea. If you see this trending pattern of, oh, here's a bunch of the good guys, and a lot of them are kind of lowish, even if the lab reference range isn't perfect, if you notice that trend of like, oh, the good guys are kind of lowish and some of the bad guys are maybe overrepresented, you know, it's it's not like you're going to get a smoking gun from a stool test 70% of the time. It's going to be yeah. this broader dysbiosis picture of this shift that you can take away and then you can use strategies to, to treat that. But don't go yeah. into it looking for the smoking gun unless, like I said, if you have Giardia or Campylobacter, then certainly... Yeah, and I do think that just coming from a more conventional mindset, which I think we all have been in the conventional conventional space at some point or the other, but I do think like there's an attractive idea of knowing exactly what's going on. Like oh, I yeah. want to know exactly what's going on in the gut and what I need to do. And I do think like that's probably an an I don't want to say un totally unrealistic, but like it's unrealistic to think that you're going to get like a smoking gun every time that you run a functional test. Yeah. Um, like, like you said, there might be a few cases and I think it's the minority that you do see something where you're like, well, yeah, we definitely need to address that. Like an outright pathogen or um, just like a, a high, high level of some sort of dysbiotic yeah. organism. Uh, but yeah, it's not usually like a super like finite answer most of the time. It's like, oh yeah, it looks like the yeah. trend is that your your bad gut bugs might be overgrowing right here and your good gut bugs are a little bit low. We need to work on that. Not like, yeah. this is it. This is the microbe that you need to take out. The answer. <laughs> this is the answer microbe. Yeah. And I, I'm going to say totally clearly, I have been in that headspace before i'm yeah i don't want to even say guilty because that makes it sound bad like but i'm guilty of this too where when my gut was bad i wanted to find it i wanted to solve it i wanted to fix it treat it 
and that search for the it food that was causing me pain or the it organism that was causing me grief was a really, um, it, it was a really energy zapping and sucky space to be in. Now, ironically for me, I did some stool testing and I did find not one, but two parasites and Candida and H. pylori. So I had a couple of it bugs potentially yeah. that made sense for me to treat. But more often than not, I'm picking up on broad patterns of dysbiosis on people, occasionally something overt, like an overgrowth of something particularly nasty. Like I had a, a stool test come back in a week or two ago. Um, the two Enterococcus species that are tested on the GI map, both of which are associated with SIBO on some of the aspirate studies. Yeah. Um, both of those were like a hundredfold higher than their reference range. It was like, Whoa. instead of E to the third, they were both like E to the fifth. And I think she had elevated pseudomonas or something else. And there was a couple of other like minor things and I think secretory IgA was low. And for that, I was like, all right, damn. Like yeah. if we're gonna label anything as it, I'm gonna wager that the ones that are a hundredfold higher than the lab reference range, even if their reference range is off by a factor of, you know, 50%, it's still elevated. Yeah. And these are highly associated with SIBO. It seems like you have SIBO. We were still waiting on the breath test, but like putting it all together, I was like, I, I think we need to treat this and we're going to target it a little bit more directly as opposed to a more broad dysbiosis protocol. But that, you know, there are situations where I see something that's clearly overgrown, clearly dysbiotic, and it needs to be wrangled into place. But yeah, there's always sure. an emphasis on nurturing the good guys as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, would, I think, go ahead. No, you. <laughs> yeah, I and I've been guilty of that uh, personally in my journey too. Of like, I want to find it, and it is energy zapping. And I like your, I, I like the way you worded, looking at the trends, um, yeah. of of the data, and not necessarily like the it of the data. Yeah. So yeah, I'm totally with you. Again, it takes some level of interpretation of of the test itself, but also of what's going on symptomatically and the context matters, like we were mentioning earlier with what's going on in the gut and stool testing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that part of that, that dream of like finding it, the it organism, I think that the idea that most people have at least, and I certainly did, was if I could identify it, that I could figure out how to target it. And it's like, all right, if I have um, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, if I have candida, I'm going to take powder arco. End yeah. of story. Good. I'm good to go. And it doesn't always shake out that way. Like your microbes and your strains of bacteria or yeast or whatever may or may not respond to the things that shake out in a research study or Facebook forum post or whatever. Um, and I think that that's noteworthy both in the context of feeding stuff and killing stuff like I've seen many many times actually when I see low acromancia for example on a stool test I'm encouraging my patients to eat red foods because acromancia yeah. seems to like red polyphenols so I'm asking them to go out and intentionally eat things like raspberries and cherries and pomegranates and cranberries and blueberries they're not red but you get they, they kind of fall into that mix too yeah 
And I've had patients who are eating like a cup of mixed berries, like frozen berries a day for a month or two. And then we repeat and acromancy has budged. And they're yeah. like, no. And I'm like, well, your acromancy might not dig that as much as other people's acromancy. That's fine. We'll move on to something else. Let's try, you know, green tea polyphenols or yeah. whatever it is. And there's going to be some amount of trial and error, no matter how good the data collection is. Like, even if you get the best stool test on planet Earth, or you get multiple stool tests, there's going to be a little bit of this trial and error where, like, you just have to try stuff and see what makes a difference either in your symptoms or your labs. And certainly feeding, I've noticed that. Same thing with, like, Fecalobacterium or Bifido. Like, we'll introduce a food that we think Bifido is really going to love, and then it's kind of so-so. But also I've seen that, too, where, like, you know, somebody comes back and they have an overgrowth of H. pylori. And then we do uh, my favorite H. pylori protocol and that it doesn't budge. It's like, all right, your H. pylori is a little different. That's okay. It's not that you're a tough case or you're an impossible case. Maybe we need to do other stuff in conjunction with treating the H. pylori. Like that's not 100% of the picture. Or maybe yours just doesn't really care very much about mastic gum and we need to do something else instead. No big deal. Um, We'll just try a different protocol. And if it's resistant after two, then maybe I'm zooming out and thinking that H. pylori is not the big enchilada for you. Um, but certainly, like, the the stool tests that used to be favored and thankfully are starting to fall out of favor these days, like doctor's data, you know, they give you this illusion where they'll show you the overgrowth of something like Klebsiella or Citrobacter. And then you go, you jump a couple pages forward, and they do those the test where they test the sensitivity against different antimicrobials and different drugs. And they'll give it to you like a bar graph and they'll show what it's highly susceptible to and what it's not susceptible to. And people, side note, every one of those I've ever seen says that like colloidal silver and uva ursi are the way to go. And I've never used those for dysbiosis (laughs) in the GI tract. Uva ursi is great for UTIs. It's not that profoundly wonderful for gut dysbiosis in my experience. Colloidal silver, I don't recommend ingesting as a side note anyway. Yeah. But, you know, it's like the the temptation, and those kind of labs really feed into this. The temptation is, step one, identify the organism that is your problem child. Step number two, identify the things that it doesn't like, and then you kill it. And even when I ran those tests, like doctor's data, and I was using that information, and I would say, ooh, look at this bar graph this thing really hates oregano, so let's nuke it with oregano. I'm going to be the first to tell you, I stopped doing that years ago because it did not work. Yeah. Consistently. Every time I ran a stool test like that, I chose the antimicrobial based on the sensitivity report that they gave. Every time, without fail, treatment did not work. And I had to start thinking outside the box. So that's another thing is like, just because a microbe grew well in a Petri dish doesn't mean it's growing well in your GI tract. And just because that organism in a Petri dish is responsive to colloidal silver, it doesn't mean that you should go taking colloidal silver to get rid of that organism. There's probably other ways that you can outfox it that are safer or more effective than sticking with like these couple of things that get recommended on these tests. Yeah, I do think, again, as humans, I feel like we like some level of like concrete. We like the idea of like finding it. And I do think just uh, thinking about my particular uh, trajectory 
I just think we all have had it in us to be in that conventional mindset where it feels very clean. Like if you have this, take this. If you have that, take that. And the functional medicine and digging to the root causes can be a little bit messy. And even from just interpreting the microbiome can be a little messy. We're constantly learning. That's kind of how I see our jobs as practitioners is to use the evidence to the best of our abilities to make the best judgment calls but we're always learning and every person's very different so we almost have to learn the particular person that we're working with too um because like you're saying you know oregano oil might be hyper reactive for one person but they really do well on berberine or Mm. um this probiotic didn't work for this case but it works for the other case um so there is there's a total level of trial and error um and i think mentally working through that is helpful in the SIBO dysbiosis candida space understanding that i don't necessarily have to find it um yeah like this one clean answer I can approach this and find and basically address different areas that will strengthen and support my whole microbiome to help shift it. Uh, And I think it's, it gets sticky and we'll talk about root causes in more detail as well. But like, even with root causes, um, so like looking at dysbiosis, there's other things outside of that from a root causal standpoint that could be feeding into the overgrowth like stress like liver gallbladder issues like um you know brain gut axis dysfunction like there's all these other issues that are a part of the equation too and again i think if we hyper focus on one particular thing it can get us into trouble and i've seen with my clients that like looking for it or getting really hyper-focused on one thing in the journey tends to derail you a little bit and Mm -hmm. prevent you from actually seeing things that are important. You're in the weeds a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I've seen that too. Like one one woman comes to mind. She reached out to me and she told me right off the get-go, first time we talked, she said, I have Klebsiella. I was like, okay cool that's awful <laughs> and you know not cool but you know what I mean like all right yeah and she said yep I got stool testing done I have Klebsiella I know it I and here's all my symptoms x y and z I was like all right and so she came in and I forget what I think actually it might have been a shitty doctor's data test that said she had Klebsiella and yeah. I was like uh all right um politely I told her that that stool test is hot garbage and we're yeah. going to just confirm it with another stool test so you know, the culture test, maybe it's useful in some capacity, but not really. I'm trying to be polite. Um, let's do a different stool test and see what we find. Not a lick of Klebsiella detected, but there's some other stuff. Yeah. So I put together this really lovely, um, you know, I, I write up these big reports on stool tests and uh, tell people about the bacteria and what we're going after and what's relevant. I write up this nice report and we talk about it and she didn't believe it. She was basically like, oh, well, is this test good though? Like, why wouldn't it detect my Klebsiella? Because it's not there. Yeah. (laughs) Because you don't have an overgrowth. Or honestly, there is also this element. Stool testing is also imperfect because stool is not homogenous. 
So yeah. theoretically, if I had all of my patients put their poop in a blender before mailing it off to the lab, I might have better data quality coming yeah. out of some of these stool tests, but nobody in their right mind is willing to do that. So I don't recommend it. But if I you feel like you could probably find someone to do it. Somebody out there, sure. But somebody like, would probably do it. You know, if you sample <laughs> the same day, the same turd, if you just sample from yeah. a slightly different place on the same turd, you're going to get a different ecosystem. And that's where, like, I, again, I think GI doctors are so hesitant to use stool testing. And yeah. it's okay. It's not perfect. I know that. But it's still useful. So there's that little 1% of my brain that with this case, I'm like, maybe you have Klebsiella and we just missed it. Like this pocket didn't have any for whatever reason. But the bigger part of my brain is saying it didn't detect it because you don't have Klebsiella because the first stool test you got was hot garbage. Yeah. And it, it exaggerated this overgrowth of something that was probably barely detectable until they put on a damn Petri dish. But, you know, she was so down this rabbit hole and in the weeds and on the Facebook forums. And she was so convinced that that yeah. was it. And she just needed to treat it that she didn't, I found that she wasn't super willing to listen to the other stuff that I found. And we didn't make a lot of headway, honestly, in her case, we maybe went one other time beyond that. And then that was kind of the end of our journey together. And I think that she really was quite um, attached to that particular it organism. And, you know, I just have a, a bad case of Klebsiella and I just need to kill it in a different way. And I hope that working with me benefited her in some capacity, but she was not um, one of my better case studies because we didn't really work together after that for yeah. very long. Well, um, and I think like, it's interesting just what I'm seeing, and we kind of talk about this too in general with our past podcast, but it's like the GI docs are hesitant to use more comprehensive stool testing. The functional space is probably over-reliant on some of these in the weeds things and it's kind of about bringing it into the middle of like how can we actually use these um what markers are more reliable like are there things we need to throw out because this doesn't really matter like yep. the microbe you found earlier or that you were talking about earlier with your client that you know there's no studies on so it's almost well, taking chickens yeah, there's like, it's more of a, I think both of our approaches is more of a rational style approach on how to get things back into balance again. Um, yeah. But it's it's just funny kind of hearing the, hearing you talk and about the different angles um, and hearing kind of us discuss the different sides of the equation and like. I tend to see like both extremes and we're kind of sitting sitting pretty in the middle of the extremes. I feel like that's the story of my life clinically. Yeah. Like exactly. everything. And I see the same thing like, you know, there's the you know, conventional medical world says that candida doesn't exist. And the functional medicine world and the naturopaths say that everybody has candida. And I'm in the yeah. middle and I'm like you're both wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, read in the middle, you guys. Come on. Or, like, everybody has SIBO, or I don't believe in SIBO. Or everybody yeah. has leaky gut, I don't believe in leaky gut. It's like, just, just, like, go on PubMed for once in your life and just <laughs> shut up and just use your brain. I can't stand it anymore. But I feel like with so many of these things, that is the case. Is like, the conventional medical world is in this one 
you know, stubborn position. And then the integrative space takes that, does the opposite and goes way too far to the other side. Yeah. And then the normal human beings of the world are left there in the middle going, well, WTF, man. Like, what do I yeah. do? Who do I listen to? Um, and yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot for me to cope with. And I'm in this field. So I can imagine that our listeners are just like, their heads are spinning. Wondering, like, what stool test is best? What do I do? So do I not kill the Klebsiella? Do I not take the antibiotic? Oh, my God. Like, I don't know what to do anymore. But that's hopefully the kind of stuff that we'll parse out and we'll we'll bestow some wisdom nuggets on people over the course of this podcast and working together because I think that there's a lot of need for the talk about the gray middle areas and taking the good and sussing out and leaving the bad stuff and trying to make the most of the tools that we have and move on with your life and just figure out enough stuff that it gets you the result that you want. And that's the thing too, like you don't need to know everything about your microbiome. I mean, probably it would be neat. And I'm a nerd. I want to know everything for sure. But like the question is not, how do we know everything about the microbiome? The question is, how do we know enough to get clinical benefit and get you feeling better. It's my only goal. It's just as long as you feel better. There's some unnamed bacteria that will be discovered 20 years from now and we don't even know how to identify it. That's fine. We'll just cross that bridge if we get there 20 years from now and you know, whatever. But let's try to just identify the big things for you right now in this moment get you unstuck and get you feeling better so that you can move on with your damn life and then never think about your microbiome again. I mean, like, eat vegetables and try to be a healthy person, but, like, your life shouldn't be consumed listening to podcasts like ours and, like, diving into this rabbit hole unless you actually want to do this for a living in an ideal world. You heal and then you move on. Um, And, yeah, and dysbiosis is definitely a big, big rabbit hole. I feel like we could fall down this rabbit hole for even longer but at the risk of having probably our longest podcast episode to date I oh think, my gosh uh, this might be a good place to wrap up um i'm sure that we're going to talk about dysbiosis in the future and we haven't even touched on the idea of small intestinal dysbiosis although that will be a topic perhaps for next time um but i think this is a great place to wrap up do you have any closing remarks or additional nuggets to throw in there before we wrap up for the day I think we've covered it, all the stuff that I wanted to cover. We've definitely touched on a lot of stuff and nerded out. And I just think the main thing is to consider the good microbes. I think that's a really key takeaway, not just the bad microbes, Yeah, uh, which we talked about earlier. I think everyone's kind of looking for the bad. I think we all have a negativity bias in general. So. We're all looking for the bad stuff, but you also want to make sure you have enough of the good stuff and that can be equally as problematic. So that's really my closing thought. Yeah. And to piggyback off of that, my kind of closing remark too, is that um, just knowing that stool testing is imperfect and not all technologies are created equal. And, um, you know, going back to this idea of nurturing the good guys, A side note, one of the reasons why, again, I'm moving away from the GI map, which I used for years, is I've noticed that it's very rare for people to get flagged as having low bifido on the GI map, which I find very suspicious. Like, almost as suspicious as the fact that literally everybody minus two people has had high bacillus on the GI map. Yeah. Um, 
I've realized over the last year or two that nobody ever has low bifido. And that's in stark contrast to the totality of research on the human microbiome that says basically everybody in the industrialized world has low bifido. And what I've noticed is when I do different types of testing, like 16S, for example, or even I just got in my first, uh, I got a BiomeFX done on myself, which is whole genome oh, nice. sequencing. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about moving to. So yeah, I, uh, I'm literally, I, I'll do mine too, because I'm, I, that's been on my list. I literally have it sitting here. Literally. That's so funny. Yeah, I just got mine back. It was an excruciating five week wait to get it. Yeah, yeah. Back, but uh, I just got that done and I've done some 16S on myself and I've been doing a lot of 16S on my patients for years. And sometimes I'll do it in combination with a GI map, which is PCR mm -hmm. testing. Yeah. And very, very consistently, a 16S test will show low bifido, like low, low bifido, yeah. kind of low lactobacillus, and very frequently low acromancia and occasionally low fecalibacterium. And most often all of those check out and look okie dokie on a GI map. So yeah. even if you think you have assessed the good microbes and you think that you're doing okay on them, um, it, it's tricky because even the good quote unquote tests and like people are super loyal to the GI map, um, they definitely have their flaws and they definitely have some biases and their reference ranges might not be perfect or the way that they're detecting these microbes might not be perfect. And I've just noticed for too long that the inconsistency with those, those three or four major good guys that I really want to assess, um, it's not cool. So I think unless you've gotten like a 16S or a whole genome sequencing test done, you probably have not adequately looked at your good guys um, and there's not as many tests that do those technology types. Most of what you're going to see, even in the integrated medicine space, is going to be culture, like doctor's data, or PCR, which would be like Genova or GI map, or like Genova actually has a combination of culture and PCR. Um, but I would say that there's more of a conversation to be had with stool testing, and I'm actually exploring a couple of different tests right now and kind of mixing and matching at the moment in my practice because there's no perfect test that looks at everything. And yeah. I think that's really important to know. Yeah, the Biome FX is really interesting because they are looking at sort of, they're trying, the, what they're trying to achieve, it sounds like, is the e ecology as a whole. Yeah. Um, and how the microbes are working together versus pinpointing like, this guy's the problem. They're, yeah. they're kind of trying to piece together a story instead of pinpointing those one microbes from what I've yeah. kind of, when I've done my research on it. So I'm excited to do it. So you got your results back. We'll have to talk about that off. Yeah. I'll email you my results so you can nerd out and see what you can, what you're going to get back in. But oh, yeah, cool. it's, I, I don't think it's the be all end all. It's not going to be yeah. my only stool test yet. For sure. Um, largely in part two, because the Biome FX, they do a great job sequencing the microbiome, I think. Yeah. Just based off of the technology that they use and the Cosmos ID, the company that they pair with, but they don't have any inflammatory or digestive markers. So if you're mm. trying to look at calprotectin. Like elastase and. Or, yeah, elastase or so Do they look fat, at Seq IgA or? No, no secretory IgA. There's yeah. none of that. So hmm. for the inflammatory stuff, and ironically, that's somewhere where Doctor's Data, I think, does a fine job, yeah. is that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, could you piece together, like, the the good parts of each of these stool tests? You might have a good, <laughs> you might have a good test. 
Well, and that's the thing. So in my head right now, there's two that I'm looking at switching over to from the GI map as my predominant stool test. And then yeah, for other that's... people... Oh, go ahead. Uh, the GI map's typically what I've been using now. I've been sort yeah. of on the hunt for a different stool test because I'm yeah. not thrilled with the reference ranges on that test either. Yeah, um, yeah I, th- I think it's a good test. It's It's definitely served me well over the years to some extent but there's enough I've noticed when you have these clinical moments where you find yourself scratching out the reference ranges and making annotations on the margin of the page and telling patients like see how that says hi don't listen to that see how this one says it's okay don't listen to that when you start doing that enough it there's there starts to be the thought process of like maybe this isn't such a good test yeah. If I have to annotate and scratch out reference ranges for a bunch of stuff, maybe I just need to chuck the test and start anew. And that's where I've gotten to a point. If I'm scratching out the reference ranges for bifido and acromancia and fecalibacterium and bacillus and whatever, it's like, all right, it, it's like enough is enough. Um, but yeah, there's. I think that one of the ways I'm going to do this with some people is you could do a PCR stool test through LabCorp Request. And bill it through insurance potentially, which is great. Yeah. So you could do a PCR test that'll look at basically all of the bad microbes from the per- first page of the GI map and does a reasonably good job of it. Same technology, PCR testing. You could pair that with a 16S cheapo test like Thrive, which I've been using for a lot of years and I think does yeah. a good job. And then you could pair that with about a $200 test from doctor's data to get all of the, you know, uh, malabsorption and like inflammatory markers and that sort of stuff. And now for probably 350 bucks plus whatever your copay is for the lab core portion of the test, you've got a pretty decent look at the good, the bad and the, you know, the malabsorption and the inflammatory stuff. So I think that's going to be my stool testing protocol of choice for a lot of people. And then for some people, I probably will do some degree of like the BioBFX um, again, there's some holes. It doesn't test for everything. It doesn't test for pathogens as thoroughly. It doesn't test for yeah. any inflammatory stuff. So it's not going to be for my sure. standalone. Yeah. And there's another one I'm kind of considering now too, but I think that's how I'm going to parse out the stool testing conversation from here on out is that I think I'm just going to abandon ship on the GI map, unfortunately. Yeah. Bye. But, yeah. <laughs> See ya. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think like the only other thing I would say about testing too is I do try to gauge like my client's level of fatigue on testing as well. So like some, like I get tons of clients who have had, you know, multiple stool tests, multiple SIBO tests, multiple hormonal, like they just have so many labs and I'm just like, okay, we know this was a, this was here at this point in time. Like we can kind of parcel together what's going on from past data or somewhat again and they don't want to do tons of testing like I do think that there's scenarios too where like you can do the basics of like how would you go about rebuilding the microbiome and there are times where like I think that testing can be more of a pain uh in certain scenarios I'm not saying in all scenarios but I tend to get a lot of people that have like fatigue on lab testing just because they've tested so much um or wallet fatigue (laughs) yeah or wallet fatigue exactly uh i but i do think there's like a level of like i don't know like 
you're putting so much stock into like what these results are saying and then if like you don't really get anywhere in the past with what the results said I think there's like less of a of a desire which I get 100 percent um but I think that that's something to consider too just as a practitioner of like where someone's uh where someone's testing fatigue level at at this particular point in time are there like basic things that are obvious to me that could be at play do we just focus on those things first um and if we need testing down the road let's do it then so yeah yeah i I think that's another point where i blame my own profession largely for that (laughs) yeah i'm just throwing them under the bus every chance i get yeah but there's so much emphasis on the testing and functional medicine yeah and you know a lot of people are like test don't guess and that's great and yet I think that there's this mentality to some degree of like, all right, if somebody's going to pay the buco bucks and work with a functional medicine practitioner, they want all the bells and whistles. Like they want the fancy tests and the in-depth analysis and all of this. And I think that that's the underlying assumption for a lot of practitioners is like, they came to me because they want the bells and whistles. It's like, no, they came to you because they just want to feel better. Yeah, so they want do, results and do what you need to do to get them to feel better, but don't do an excessive amount of stuff just because you want to be fancy and do all the bells and whistles. Not everybody needs a Dutch test. Not everybody <laughs> needs a GI map. Not everybody needs yeah. whatever. And I actually I call it the Mark Hyman effect or the the Mark Hyman <laughs> method. Uh, he's awesome. Like nothing against the guy, but I remember oh, at one point many years ago it was like ten years ago. I, my parents lived in Massachusetts, and they were maybe an hour away from Mark Hyman's clinic at the time. And I actually <sighs> contemplated driving my mom out there and taking her to see Mark Hyman. And I remember that when I was doing some of the onboarding and talking with their front desk staff, they said uh, that new patients can expect to spend $5,000 on testing. Across the board. Whoa. Like, we haven't even met with the doctor yet. Yeah. Nothing. And it's like, okay. So that tells me that literally everybody who walks through the door gets this giant battery of tests. Yeah. Everybody, that must be it, because there's no way. These tests are expensive, but they're not that expensive. That must mean everybody's getting a SIBO test, a poop test, a hormone test, an adrenal test, blood work, a vitamin and mineral test, a hair mineral analysis, a urine test, organic, whatever it is. I can't even wrap my head around how I would spend $5,000 on testing. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But that must be the protocol and you know people see the celebrities like Mark Hyman and they think oh I need to be like him yeah and if somebody learned about functional medicine watching Mark Hyman videos on Facebook they clearly want that it's like no nobody in their right mind wants to spend money on unnecessary testing or redundant testing they just want to feel better so not everybody needs you know a hormone test. Not everybody needs a SIBO test. Not everybody needs a whatever. Just do what you need to do to get them to feel better and then leave the other crap at the door. Um, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, again, the problem I see with, like, again, the testing that you're describing in the functional medicine space is I think you, sometimes if the focus then becomes, like, totally on the testing, you miss very obvious things, like stress management. Like, you spend all your time going over tests and not on going over really key like lifestyle factors or dietary factors like yeah. all these like really crucial Calories. pieces 
We're yeah, chewing. all these yeah, all these really crucial pieces get lost and uh, it's just crazy to me. But um yeah, I mean, I think testing can definitely be very helpful, but there's there's a level of testing that makes sense and then there's also a level that gets a little bit in the weeds and I do think that the functional integrative space needs to be a little bit better about uh, reining that in. Yeah, and again, it's another situation where we're caught in the middle, right? Like the conventional medical space (laughs) is like, oh, we'll just do a colonoscopy and endoscopy and then maybe a blood test for celiac disease and then you're good. And if you're lucky, they test for vitamin B12. (laughs) That's it. Look out. Nothing else. And the functional space, you know, you have the Mark Hyman's of the world who are literally spending $5,000 on every single patient for lab testing, plus the cost of appointments. And that is not across the board, but I've seen that multiple times. And then we're in the middle and we're like, well, we could do more testing than the conventional medical world, but maybe not $5,000 worth of testing. Like, let's try to keep it to a reasonable, you know, 500 bucks or something. For sure. And I think the worst, because I have worked with a couple of like fall offs of the bigger like functional names. Um, I don't want to name names, but it would be a a recognizable recognizable name that I've worked Mm -hmm. with. And like it it then be like, I feel like his solution to everything was like bone broth, like just do just do bone broth and eat low carb and that's gonna like solve your problem so like you do all this testing spend all this money and that's like it's like a one-size-fits-all plan and i just think it's very frustrating to for people to maneuver through and i do think that there's a level of like distrust that people start to garner over time uh from having spending all this money on test and nothing really came of the test and Mm -hmm. they don't they didn't really understand it and so it's always something I try to check in on and make sure like, okay, this testing can give us information, but like, let's make sure we're covering the key bases and that we're not letting, we're not getting lost in the testing and ignoring yeah. really big pieces. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's also, important. yeah. Also, didn't we say we were going to end the podcast like 20 <laughs> minutes ago? <laughs> we did. <just. laughs> We just kept going. We we What's were it? like, we're going to do a hard stop here. And then we never, we just. We don't have hard stops, you and I. We just you, bulldoze through. You keep through. talking, Amy. I don't mind a bit. If people oh are still God. listening, then cheers to them. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, my gosh. I'm good. I mean, I, I think we, we definitely covered, we covered stool testing a lot, too, which was, I think, a really going to be really helpful for people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, marvelous. Well, I think that we will wrap for the day for real, for real right here. Cool. As always, folks, if you're listening on a podcasting platform, whether it be iTunes or Spotify or whatever, please rate us five stars. It'll help us reach more people and reach more ears and help more people recover from IBS slash SIBO slash whatever they have. And if you are on YouTube, similarly, it would really help a lot and help us grow this channel. If you could like the video, comment on the video, tell us what type of stuff you want us to cover. We're open-minded to new ideas. And if you could subscribe to the channel, that would be marvelous. And we now have a email and you could email us if you so choose. And that is ibsfreedompod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. So send us an email or comment in the YouTube thread and let us know what topics do you think we should cover next? 
Otherwise, we're just going to keep talking about stuff that interests us. So stay tuned for the next episode. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in.